Welcome to Talk of the Town on 2SER, in which we bring you coverage of events around Sydney. I'm Ryan Stanton, and this week we're delving into the final set of talks from the recent TEDx Macquarie University event. Over the next hour, you're going to hear talks from some of the speakers at this event, discussing a variety of topics. From issues of inequality to the unifying power of sport, each talk brings you a new idea that, in the spirit of TED Talks, we think is worth sharing. This week, we're presenting talks on the need for diversity and the strength of unity. Sometimes humorous, often confronting, but always insightful. The range of topics these speakers cover include autism, Australia's checkered past and present record of racial reconciliation, and the power of sport to unite the world. But before we get to that, representation. Much of the talk about diversity in the media centers on representation. Whether it's enough, whether there should be more, the quality of what exists. In our first talk, Moving Beyond the Token Minority, journalist, author, and screenwriter Amal Awad discusses the idea of the token minority and the need for movement beyond this towards a more genuine model of inclusivity. Let's take a listen. When I was a kid, my father owned a video rental store. So in between playing with friends and doing my homework, I watched movies. I had Hollywood on tap. I developed a great love of story. So it's no surprise that I eventually became a writer of books, but also for the screen. In my first screenwriting class, my teacher told us we watch cinema because life is hard. Words that I hold on to because as I grew older and struggled to find my place in the world, I started to see a problem with the stories being told. As a female in an Arab Muslim family growing up in the West, I was nowhere to be found. Nor could I find anyone who resembled me in the films I watched. When we did appear, the depictions were never very nice or authentic. There's this guy coming to a theater near you. <laughs> and here's me, apparently. <laughs> a cautionary tale. We're always veiled and in the desert. It's called the 3B syndrome. Arabs are always billionaires, bombers, or belly dancers. <laughs> to which I would add my own version. The three C's were also cab drivers, convenience store owners, or crackpots. <laughs> I can count on one hand the number of characters I've seen in a film where the character is incidentally Muslim. That is, he's, in the, he's not in the film as a Muslim, he just happens to be one. And I say he because women are also poorly represented across the board. Women are generally there to progress the hero's journey, and minority women have it even worse. Arab women, for example, are often seen as victims of their culture and their men. They lack dimension and personality. And this is especially pronounced in fiction. There is an entire genre of trauma lit. You know the book covers. The woman is completely covered in a veil, only her terrified eyes are peeking out. And the titles usually have words like kingdom and desert and terror and veils. Those ones. <laughs> Stereotypes abound in all cultures, but in the West, there is a dominant culture. And that's the world we primarily see in popular culture. White characters who are able-bodied 
and heterosexual. There's an absence of characters who happen to be from a minority, characters who just lead interesting lives or go on that hero's journey. Now, I never say we're not humanized. We're very human, but we're not normalized. If there's an Arab character in the show you're watching, chances are the storyline involves terrorism. I can still remember the first time I saw something more authentic. It was years ago, and I was watching a film called Amrika. It's written and directed by Shireen Debis. It's a rare beast. It's a romantic comedy with a Palestinian heroine set in the West. In the film, the family sat around the dinner table, eating food that I grew up eating, and I cried. <laughs> I'd honestly never seen my life portrayed so normally, and yet with so much meaning and resonance, and I haven't really seen much like it since. Now, other minorities do take a hit. Uh, take your average Hollywood film. How often have you seen the Russian mafia, African-American gangs, South American drug dealers, exotic orientals, the list goes on. That's just what we're seeing in Hollywood these days. And these problems apply to all represent like representation problems apply to all minorities. So whether it's ethnicity, religion, gender identity, sexual orientation, or disability status, in popular culture, there is a problem with how we represent minorities, and it's made worse by a lack of representation. And there is solid research on this. A couple of years ago, Screen Australia surveyed the state of the industry, looking specifically at the state of TV drama in Australia. The results showed that how we reflect Australian life does not reflect our reality. Here's cultural diversity. Mostly we're underrepresented. The one success story is Indigenous stories because of a concerted effort to make sure we're getting authentic Indigenous storytelling from Indigenous storytellers. But unfortunately, we're still behind on LGBTQI characters and characters with a disability. The reason why stories are not diverse enough is because the people telling the stories are not diverse enough. There's also research that shows that overwhelmingly, the people in charge in the arts sector in Australia are not a diverse group. That is, more than half of Australia's major arts, cultural and screen organisations don't have culturally diverse leadership. This affects what we see and what gets made. And what we're seeing are stories told about us, not by us. Stories that explore how others see us, not how we see ourselves. How we see ourselves. My first novel was a take on a romantic comedy with a Muslim heroine. There were no Muslim heroines to be found, so I wrote one. Not just to fill a gap in the market, but to fill a gap in me. There is a change in the window. There is increasingly a focus on diversity. And I'm, it's long overdue, but I'm glad that we're seeing it. Essentially, what we're seeing is a focus on characters who are not simply from a minority. But I think of it as a diversity pendulum swing. We're out of balance, so we're swinging the pendulum to restore it. The problem is, when you swing the pendulum a little bit too hard to the other side of the spectrum, we start to get representation with some problems. Representation, but not necessarily meaningful representation. Where it's about difference, not compelling story or great characters. 
more representation to plug the gaps, but characters are exoticized, fetishized, or tokenized. So the answer to the scary Arab Muslim terrorist is a nice Arab man who gets mistaken for being a scary Arab Muslim terrorist. <laughs> Minority characters don't have to be nice. They should be real. They should be complex. And the problem is when we're only showing characters as good or bad, we're not telling authentic stories. We're really only enforcing stereotypes when you think about it. <laughs> I've been observing this diversity pendulum swing in mainstream media for a while now. I started writing satire. That's how I started out. But eventually, my title read like a cultural resume. Amal Awad is an Arab-Australian Muslim writer, not simply a writer. I have no desire to hide my heritage. But when identity labels are included in the description, what that might say to some people is, Amal Awad can only write about being Arab, Australian, and Muslim. Minority credentials can reduce our value as artists. We become activists, not storytellers. When I wrote confessional pieces for mainstream media, it seemed to me like they just wanted stories of trauma and the challenges of living in the West. That's what the demand was. When I stepped outside of expectation, I was rejected. I know I'm not alone in this. I know a lot of writers who feel the same frustration, writers who are very good at what they do, but they get categorized based on their diversity credentials or that of their characters. This is what we have to deal with when we're diverse writers. However, it's also a problem in screenwriting. <laughs> when you have diversity credentials, you start out as a screenwriter, a lot of what you're doing is consulting on other people's projects. So it's a great experience to learn. You're also making other people's stories more authentic, but you're not necessarily getting experience yourself. But I also do writer's rooms as a writer. Uh, writer's rooms where television shows are fleshed out, storylines, plots, and all of that. I go in as a writer. But sometimes it still feels like I'm in there as that cultural consultant. Sometimes it's hard to move past the slot that people have put you into. But we need stories told by us, not about us. Stories that don't just represent, but normalize. That's what real diversity looks like, and that's what audiences are asking for. Movies like Crazy Rich Asians, with its nearly 100% Asian cast, it didn't dilute comedy, it was just a romantic comedy, it didn't dilute the culture either. And it happened to have Asians at its center. We need diverse storytellers telling more than stories of trauma. We need diverse storytellers to not be educators or activists. Like any storyteller, we write and create to explore and interrogate our humanity and the world we live in. While our perspectives may be colored by our experiences, they're certainly not limited by them. I know writers from diverse backgrounds who love genre writing. They're sci-fi fans or fantasy nerds. These are all ways to truth, and that's what we do when we write. We tell the truth because life is hard. And there are so many ways to tell that truth now. You can shoot a, uh, a low-budget web series. You can shoot 
a film on your smartphone, you can self-publish. We don't have to wait for the big break or permission to tell our stories. But the big break sure does help. Around the world, we are starting to see initiatives that specifically target underrepresented voices, putting them in front of mentors and executives so that they can develop their stories and their skills. Initiatives like inclusivity attachments, where a project has to have a certain number of diverse talents on board. These initiatives are essential. I can tell you now how often I've been told that talent is the ultimate decider. That's simply not true. Wealth, class, accessibility, privilege, and connections all play into who gets to tell stories. But we also have to be careful with our quotas. Quotas can limit diversity rather than expand it. Minority writers have to fight for those places in the industry sometimes. If a room has one Arab or one Asian, it's unlikely to have another. But you can have more than one minority in the room. I know progress is not a straight line but we can create more genuinely diverse stories where our fictional worlds reflect the real ones, where minority voices are just voices, where our stories are told by us, not about us, where our stories don't just represent but normalize. I've spent many years being a storyteller. It's what I do. It's what I have to do. It's how I make sense of all of these threads of existence. And always at the back of my mind, there she is, that little girl who grew up in a video rental store with Hollywood on tap, who never saw herself on screen or in the books she read. And not far behind her is 20-something me who decided to write a Muslim heroine, not just to fill a gap in the market, but to fill the gap in me. Thank you. Amal Awad there, closing out her talk with a reminder of the importance of representation, challenging the prevailing stereotypes in the media. Our next talk is also about challenging stereotypes. Dr. Jack Denhouting is a postdoctoral research associate at Macquarie University. She's also autistic, but instead of letting the current paradigm of autism define her, Jack calls for a re-examination of the way we view autism. Instead of viewing it through a medical model, which has historically been the case, she highlights new theories which view autism through a social model. But what exactly is the social model? And how does this challenge assumptions about autism? Listen on to her talk, Why Everything You Know About Autism Is Wrong, to find out more. We know that the Earth is round. Everything we understand about this planet is grounded in the fundamental assumption that the Earth is round. But there was a time not all that long ago when we knew that the Earth was flat. That's called a paradigm shift. Our basic assumptions about the Earth changed because we had evidence showing that our previous assumptions were wrong. Just like the shape of the Earth, there are assumptions about autism too. Most people understand autism through medical assumptions. They understand autism as a medical condition, a disorder, even as a tragedy. 
In the medical paradigm, we're taught to believe that there's a correct way to develop neurologically, that there's a right way for our brains to work, the normal way, and that any other way of developing is wrong and needs to be treated and fixed. In 2011, when I was 25 years old, I was diagnosed with autism. And it wasn't a tragedy. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Finding out that I'm autistic, it brought me an overwhelming sense of relief. My whole life up to that point finally made sense. My paradigm about myself shifted. I wasn't a failed neurotypical person. I was a perfectly good autistic person. After my diagnosis, I did what most of us would probably do. I went to Dr. Google <laughs> and I started researching autism. Eventually, I upgraded from Dr. Google. I did my PhD in autism, became a doctor myself. And today I'm proud to be one of a growing number of openly autistic people working in autism research. But in those early days, I wasn't running a complex research project. I was just trying to learn more about myself. And learn about myself, I did. I was bombarded with information. I was bombarded with information about my deficits. Autism causes deficits in social interaction, deficits in communication, restricted and repetitive behaviours, sensory processing deficits. For me, that information just didn't make sense. Finding out that I'm autistic had completely changed my life for the better. How could something that was so positive for me be such a bad thing? So I went back to Dr Google, but this time I dug deeper. I started to find information about autism that was written not by researchers or other professionals, but by actual autistic people. I discovered a thing called the neurodiversity paradigm. The neurodiversity paradigm is an alternative way of thinking about autism. It describes autism as a part of the range of natural variation in human neurological development. At its very simplest, autism is a different way of thinking. Just like biodiversity helps to create a healthy and sustainable physical environment, neurodiversity can help to create a healthy and sustainable cognitive environment. According to the neurodiversity paradigm, there are no right or wrong brains. All forms of neurological development are equally valid and equally valuable. And regardless of what type of brain you've got, all people are entitled to full and equal human rights and to be treated with dignity and respect. Now, that sounds a bit like a panacea. I know, treating people with dignity and respect. It just makes sense. You might be surprised then to learn that a pretty common way of reacting to this idea is, I don't know. I mean, 
It's all right for you, but it doesn't apply to everybody. What about this person? They're really autistic. They're not just different, they're disabled. Well, maybe you can't tell just by looking at me, but I'm disabled too. I'm not disabled by my autism, though. I'm disabled by my environment. This is another paradigm shift. The way that we're used to thinking about disability is based in a model called the medical model of disability. The medical model assumes that disability is an individual problem. It places disability within the disabled person, within me. For example, I really struggle with shopping malls. They're loud, they're brightly lit, they're unpredictable, they're full of people. The medical model would say that I struggle with shopping malls because there's a problem with the way that my brain processes that input because I'm autistic. But there's another way to think about disability. It's called the social model of disability. In the social model, disability happens when a person's environment doesn't cater for their individual characteristics. In the social model, we don't, we don't refer to people with a disability. Disability isn't something that I carry around like luggage. Instead, we use the word disabled as a verb. Disability is something that's being done to me. I'm actively being disabled by the society around me. When I go to a shopping mall, I don't struggle because there's something wrong with me. I struggle because the shopping mall is designed in a way that doesn't cater to my needs. If we started designing shopping malls that were quiet, dimly lit, predictable, and sparsely populated, well, I'd still be autistic, but I might not be disabled by shopping malls anymore. Almost everything we know about autism stems from research that's based in medical assumptions and the medical paradigm. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars globally every year on autism research, and the vast majority of that research conceptualizes autism as a problem. Recently, I conducted a study examining how autism research funding has been invested in Australia over the past 10 years. Here's what I found. More than 40% of funding went to genetic and biological research, trying to find out why autistic people are the way we are and if there's a way to prevent it. Another 20% of funding went to research investigating treatments for autism, most of which are trying to find new ways to make autistic people just act a bit less weird. Only 7% of funding went to research investigating services to help autistic people. Why does this matter? Well, around one in 50 people are autistic. About 60% of autistic adults are under or unemployed. 
87% of us have mental illness. Autistic people are nine times more likely than the general population to die by suicide. We have an average life expectancy of just 54 years. And we deserve better. In 2012, an autistic researcher named Dr. Damian Milton proposed a new theory. He called it the double empathy problem. And what he suggested was this. Maybe autistic people don't actually have social deficits. Maybe we just get along better with other people who think like us. Maybe autistic people socialize better with other autistic people and non-autistic people socialize better with other non-autistic people. Maybe the difficulties that we see when autistic and non-autistic people try to socialize aren't because the autistic person has social deficits, but because autistic and non-autistic people are both bad at communicating in ways that make sense to the other. Now, to the autistic community, this made perfect sense. But a lot of autism researchers weren't so keen. I guess maybe they didn't like the idea that the whole history of autism research could be based on flawed assumptions. Luckily, in the last couple of years, a handful of autism researchers have jumped on board with the double empathy problem, and they've decided to test it scientifically. In one brand new study by Dr. Catherine Crompton from the University of Edinburgh, they did this using a task called a diffusion chain, which in Australia we know by the slightly politically incorrect name of Chinese whispers. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, you whisper a piece of information around a group of people, one by one, and you try to keep it as accurate as possible. And if you've played, you know that the accuracy part is pretty hard. The first person will whisper a perfectly innocent sentence, like, today I need to pay my rent and get new tires. But by the last person, Donald Trump is president and the world's on fire. Well, in Edinburgh, they played that game with three groups of participants. The first group was all autistic people. The second group was all non-autistic or neurotypical people. And the third group was a combination of autistic and neurotypical people. The researchers found that the all autistic and all neurotypical groups were equally accurate in their information sharing, but the combined autistic and neurotypical group was significantly less accurate and less clear in their information sharing. That suggests that autistic and non-autistic people communicate equally well. It's the mismatch between those communication styles that causes the problems, exactly as the double empathy problem predicts. We need a paradigm shift in the way that we think about autism. We need to recognize that maybe acting less weird is not the best outcome for an autistic person. We need services and supports that will help us to live long, happy and fulfilling lives while respecting our right to be authentically autistic. And we need the kind of work that I do 
research led by autistic people that answers the questions autistic people want answered. Because the earth is not flat and I am not a tragedy. Thank you. That was Dr. Jack Den Houting, ending her talk by highlighting the need for more research which challenges the current paradigm used to study autism. And if you want to know more about this paradigm, you're in luck. I interviewed Dr. Jack to find out more about the autism research field, how it's changing, and how these changes may affect how we should interact with others. The first question I have for you is you said that you received your diagnosis at the age of 25. I'm wondering how many people do receive a diagnosis later in life as opposed to childhood? Um, it's, it's actually surprisingly common to get a late diagnosis and it's, um, it's become, I think, increasingly common in the last, say, 10 years or so. Um, and part of the reason for that is because we've developed much more understanding of what autism is and how it, how it can look, um, particularly in adults, more recently. Um, so it's, it's definitely become more common recently. Um, I personally know a lot of people who have received an adult diagnosis, um, and particularly for people who are sort of my generation and above, people who are maybe sort of 30 and above, it's a lot more common um, because... The, the diagnosis of autism wasn't really understood properly until about the 1990s. Um, so anyone who was a child before that flew under the radar and, and wasn't really recognised as being autistic. So this idea of um, older generations getting this diagnosis and stuff being a more recent thing, it feels in a way similar to the idea that it's only more recently that we've been challenging the idea of autism and other forms of neurodivergence as deficits. Why do you think they have been viewed in that negative light for so long? Um, I think it ties into much broader sort of social and, and cultural issues around minority groups in general being seen as inferior or or wrong. Um, you know, you can look at things like the the civil rights movement in the US or, um, you know, the LGBT pride movement and, you know, the, the fact that um, homosexuality has is, is only recently sort of become accepted. Um, I think there's there's been a real historical tendency to, yeah, see any type of otherness as, being wrong as being problematic and I guess autism is just another form of difference that has fallen into that category. So I guess the the autism rights movement and the neurodiversity movement specifically has followed pretty closely in the heels of the um, of the gay rights movement and also the disability rights movement. You also mentioned that part of the reason you've become part of these groups is thanks to the work of fellow autistic researchers. What percentage of people working in the field would have this type of awareness? In terms of the the percentage of 
autism researchers who are autistic couldn't even begin to guess. I could probably count the number of people I know in the field who are openly autistic on probably on one hand. Um, I might need two hands. <laughs> um, I know there's there's definitely a growing number of um, sort of people who are early in their careers or people who are students in the field. But at the moment, it's it's quite a small community. I'm sure that there are plenty of, of people working in the field who are autistic and are not open about that fact because unfortunately there is still a lot of stigma that, that comes with being open about your diagnosis. Um, but yeah. One of the things that you mention in your talk, which aims to sort of challenge this stigma and give a new meaning to this condition, is the social model of disability. What's the origin of this model? So the social model of disability, my understanding of the origin of that is that it came out of uh, the the UK in, uh, I think, the 1970s, somewhere around there. And it was, um, it basically was built out of the work of a group of sort of disabled advocates and disability researchers, disability scholars, who essentially were sick of the medical profession and, and the medical approach to disability and the, the sort of perception that disability is, you know, an individual problem. And so the problem comes from being treated in that way by society rather than from any physical or mental or cognitive difference that you might have. Why, why has society treated people like this, do you? Do you think what's the, what's the rationale behind it? Uh, it's it's a very difficult question to answer, and I think there are so many different factors that probably um, that probably play into it. Um, I think you know there's sort of an inherent fear of difference that that people have, and an inherent sort of tendency to. I guess go towards things that are familiar and, and things and people that are similar to us. Um, I think I think with disability, there's probably a, a fear that you know a fear of becoming like that um, because disability is one of the only minority groups that that anyone can join at any time. You know, anyone can become disabled, um, and I think. A lot of people are afraid of that thought because they do have that medical perception of disability as being a bad thing and being a negative thing. There are there are so many so many factors that could play into it, and I don't think there's one easy answer or easy solution um, to to the issue. You discuss in your talk double empathy theory and the mismatch between communication styles that comes from that, between autistic and non-autistic people. How can we work to make communication between these groups and other groups as well, if, if it's relevant, better? How, how can we better communicate? I think a really important thing is, is remaining open to, to, I guess, new experience to different ways of communicating to not making assumptions, not jumping to conclusions, you know, being being willing to listen. Um, I think understanding 
some of the, I suppose, key elements of different types of communication as well. So, for example, a lot of autistic people tend to use uh, less emphasis in, in the way that they speak. Um, they, they tend to be much more forthright, or we tend to be much more forthright um, in the way that we speak, whereas non-autistic people might tend to sort of you know, speak around something a little bit more and, and not necessarily get straight to the point. And so I think it's about um, understanding those differences, being willing to accept those differences and take those into account when you're communicating. That's, that's a good start. I think there's a long way to go, um, you know, and I think we probably need more research and more understanding um, in from an academic sense in, in how these different types of communication work um, before we'll be able to really effectively communicate with each other. Um, but I think just just being open to listening and to um, trying is where we need to start. And on the flip side, just briefly, how shouldn't we communicate? Um, I think... You know, every every autistic person is is different, the same as every non-autistic person is different. So uh, there's not necessarily cut and dried rules for for how not to communicate. Um, aside from you know the the standard sort of rules that you would that you would put into place with anyone. You know, don't don't sort of be deliberately offensive, don't yell unless you really need to, that sort of stuff. Um, I think a lot of autistic people struggle with um, with sort of idioms and, and turns of phrase, um, like, you know, pull your socks up or something like that. Um, so avoiding those can be good for some people. Um, being quite specific is, is generally better than being sort of vague, um, the best, the best rule of thumb is always just to ask the person that you're trying to communicate with them what their own specific needs are and what their own specific preferences are um, and, you know, have that conversation about how best you can accommodate that particular person um, and, and act on whatever it is that they need. Is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners before I let you go? Anything that you think they should know? Um, I think it's it's really important to to, to know that um, you know autistic people are out there and people with all sorts of other invisible disabilities are out there um, and to recognise that you know just because someone doesn't look stereotypically disabled doesn't mean that they're not struggling. Um, they will also likely have very you know very amazing strengths and, and abilities um, and. But to just be really, you know, be be understanding. Don't judge people, <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and and be aware that there are so many undiagnosed autistic people out there too. Um, and you know, if the idea of being autistic is something that people can um, can sort of relate to or that um, makes sense to them then there's lots of information out there, there's lots of resources out there um, and it can be a really really beneficial and really life-changing experience to get that understanding of yourself and to find out that maybe you actually are autistic. Dr Jack Dan Houting there, talking to me about the way perceptions of autism 
are changing. This is Talk of the Town on 2SER, bringing you coverage of events around Sydney. This week, we're sharing all the talks from Macquarie University's TEDx event that touch on diversity. They challenge stereotypes, call for action, and highlight the potential power in a united and diverse community. On the land now commonly referred to as Australia, the structures and systems collectively known as media, education, politics, health, agriculture, and policing continue to be reflective of white supremacist ideologies which were intentionally and overtly core to their foundations. This statement may be uncomfortable to hear, and listeners may disagree, but it forms the core of our next speaker's argument. Amy Tunig is a Gamilaroi woman, teacher, and associate lecturer at Macquarie University. In her talk, Disruption is Not a Dirty Word, she presents an uncompromising view of Australia's racial history and the injustices Indigenous Australians and others have faced at the hands of the institutions in charge. Let's take a listen. Yama, Naya Amy Sinig, Gimilare Inar, Winning Elena, Darad Mari, Gunungo Marin, Ne Marin, Inara Dalaga, Gano Mari, Gano Gumali, Nua Iladu. Hello, I'm Amy Tunig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman. I acknowledge Darug people, their ancestors, my ancestors, all Darug people, all Aboriginal people, and all who are gathered here today. Where are we gathered today? We're presently standing on the unceded lands of the Darug Nation, but you're more likely to know it as North Ride. Anywhere you may gather across this vast continent now commonly referred to as Australia, you're standing on stolen land land from which sovereignty has never been ceded, and where no treaties are presently in place. How aware of this are you? Truly. Beyond, say, implementing an acknowledgement of country, have you ever considered that actually the First Nations people of this land have the right to not welcome you at all? How aware and accepting are you of the fact that you live, work and profit on land that has been stolen? within systems that were created with the belief and promise that the First Nations people would soon be annihilated. On this land now commonly referred to as Australia, the systems collectively known as education, media, politics, health, agriculture and policing, all of the elements imposed upon our daily lives, are reflective of a white supremacist ideology that was overtly core to their foundation. We live within that system a system which was introduced when the British invaded some 200 years ago. They entered a land which for time immemorial had already been home to and continued to be home to complex social, political and familial systems with well-established trade, agriculture and farming, all of which were in good health and appropriate to this climate. Globally, it's now acknowledged that First Nations people of these lands Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the oldest continuous people groups in the world. Current dating methods prove over 100,000 years of continuous community right here. If this is news to you, that's no accident. The lie of terra nullius and the assertion of white supremacy relies on perpetuating an image of a primitive hunter-gatherer Indigenous person. 
which naturally then positions the invader as more humane, very well intended, and regardless of outcomes, certainly acting for the greater good. The greater good, invasion brought with it genocide, frontier wars, the introduction of farming and crops, which had and have no place in this climate, the greater good of stealing Indigenous children, blackbirding, and turning families and communities into dehumanised workforces of indentured servants. Introduced on these lands and spreading out over a 230-year period, we, you and I, now live within systems and frameworks which were built from that foundation and are embedded with that legacy, a legacy which reveals itself through ongoing significant social disadvantage, the transgenerational trauma from stealing the children and dispossessing people of their lands, and a climate so sick that the riverbeds are running dry for the first time in human history, which on these lands is a history which spans back time immemorial. But how many times do we need to say this? How many books, articles, reports and inquiries need to be written? See, not only does this system not seek to be questioned, it actually relies on the truth not being heard and received by you, the broader Australian public. It relies on you being conditioned to believe that genocide, the stealing of the land, the ongoing lack of treaty, the ongoing over-policing and over-incarcerating of Aboriginal people and children is all somehow for the greater good. When these truths which I've mentioned are raised, perhaps when questioning the ongoing idolisation of the men and organisations who introduced white supremacy here, we're generally met firmly with two responses. Firstly, any and all discussion, disruption or debate must be done in a civil manner. And secondly, we're told, well, those men and those acts, they're simply products of their time. Products of their time? When did that time end exactly? I'd like us to briefly consider some of those men, their work, and these notions of greater good and civility. Governor Lachlan Macquarie, in his Governor's Diary in 1816, wrote, and I quote, I have this day ordered three separate military detachments to march into the interior and remote parts of the colony for the purpose of punishing the hostile natives by clearing the country of them entirely. In the event of the natives making the smallest show of resistance or refusing to surrender when called upon so to do, the officers commanding the military parties have been authorised to fire on them to compel them to surrender. Hanging from trees the bodies of such natives as may be killed on such occasions in order to strike the greater terror into the survivors. My family and I live on a Awabiko land but you're more likely to know it as Lake Macquarie. I work at Macquarie University, and today I'm giving a TEDx talk under the banner of TEDx Macquarie. Every day I'm aware that these places and spaces continually idolise the very man who not only ordered the killing of First Nations people, but that our dead bodies should be strewn through the trees so as to strike terror in our hearts. We're told to get over it, we can't even get away from it. But it wouldn't be fair of me to only highlight Macquarie, so let's also look at Lieutenant Governor Latrobe, a name you probably know from Latrobe University. 
Latrobe, like many others of his time, had figured out that Aboriginal people were willing and able to learn the skills like reading and writing, but once done, would return to the love, strength and culture of our mob. He, therefore, concluded that only coercion could overcome our natural propensities to want to be Aboriginal with our family. And he said, nothing short of an actual and total separation from the parents and natural associates, an education at a distance from the haunts and beyond the influence of the habits and example of the tribe would hold out a reasonable hope of their ultimate civilization and Christianization. And it was Lieutenant Governor Ralph Darling of Darling Harbour fame, who came to the conclusion that attempts to educate Aboriginal children had failed, as Aborigines learned to read and write, yet returned to their tribes and remained with them as soon as their education was finished. If we consider this even briefly, it's incredibly clear that none of this was ever for our greater good. It wasn't an opportunity of education. It wasn't for our children's safety. They knew we would and could learn those skills that they valued so dearly, but that we also continued to value our family, our culture, and our land. And so they introduced and rolled out the laws and roles that they then used to steal our children. And if we fast forward to 1907, we've got James Isdell, a Western Australian pastoralist and parliamentarian, holding the role of travelling protector. He reported to his superior, I would not hesitate to separate any half-caste from its Aboriginal mother, no matter how frantic the momentary grief might be at the time. They soon forget their offspring. Products of their time. A time where cruel and inhumane acts are put forward as centering civility, as framed by Christian and Anglo-centric values. So what about us? It's time to question what products and acts are going to be the result of our time. Many Indigenous activists, various academics, and a pretty basic data analysis contends that genocide is an ongoing process in an Australia that has failed to decolonise. More Aboriginal children are forcibly removed from their families today than during the era now formally known as the Stolen Generation. Yet in both eras, the argument of for their greater good is employed. But unlike the people of the 1900s, the broader Australian population, that's you, will not be able to engage in any cover of plausible deniability. See, we are an empowered set of generations with many conduits of communication, the ability to talk to one another across continent, across the globe in real time, and the ability and resources to fact check, right? I assume in highlighting these quotes and these stats to you that you don't want to actively contribute to ongoing oppression and genocide, that this doesn't please you, but how many of you ignore our mass protests every January 26, fail to take any action when we are over-policed, over-incarcerated and continue to die in police custody and police presence? And say to yourselves, if not to one another, well, they'd get a lot further if they behaved in more civil debate. Civility is too often a word used to say, seek your freedom my way, which is to say, do not seek it at all. And on hearing this, you might think that you want to help me. And I appreciate that intent, but I am here today to challenge it. Lilla Watson says it so perfectly when she says, 
If you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. These systems are not broken. They are working exactly as they intend. We, the masses, are crushed in order to prop up the wealth and the power of the few. And First Nations people, we're at the bottom of that crushing pile. No, I don't want to succeed in a system that locks families seeking asylum into gulags known as offshore detention centre. I don't want success in a system that says 10-year-olds have criminal liability and lock children up in jail. I don't want success in a system where there are eight job seekers for every one available job, yet those experiencing unemployment and homelessness are labelled bludgers. In that system, propaganda, dehumanising language and the control of the masses under the power of the few continue. That system has a recent Prime Minister who literally says that 100,000 years' wealth of land, culture, trade and family was nothing but bush because it was prior to 1888. Where another recent Prime Minister denies genocide even took place despite masses of evidence to the contrary. Another recent Prime Minister says challenging colonial idolisation is akin to Stalinism and where despite knowing we're on track to be decimated by climate change, our current Prime Minister insists that coal and this direction is in Australia's best interest. <laughs> Whose interest? It was recently revealed that wealth inequality in this country is growing. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. But this little tidbit was left out of the ABS press release as it apparently doesn't make a good story. No, I don't want success in a system where the New South Wales government are granting permits to drain our rivers, the Queensland government are, let's not even go there, the Victorian government are putting more money into developing and supporting prisons than they are into supporting health and schooling services. A system which, despite so much evidence to the contrary, insists that Western democracy is a meritocracy. And we can sit around and laugh about what a sickening joke that is, and people can decry, this is not our Australia. But actually, for some 200 years up and into today, it really is your Australia. Because despite some success in challenging certain laws, these systems continue to perpetuate this practice of centering the few on the active oppression of everyone it deems to be an other. But the good news is, Recognising this means recognising that these systems are not an inevitable evolution. They are not an accident, nor are they fate. They are crafted, introduced, normalised. That means that we can challenge them. Change is not out of our hands. I do not want to join you in that existing system. I want you to join me in challenging it. We are a people of our time, a time of smartphones, social media, collective action and mass communication. Let us also be a time of disruption and dismantling. The few may claim authority, but we, you and I, have the power. And so I say to you, disruption is not only our opportunity, it is our collective responsibility. Thank you.
That was Amy Tunick, ending her talk on a hopeful note, highlighting the disruptive powers in our hands. This power is also at the core of our final talk, delivered by a man who some of you may find familiar. Craig Foster is an SBS sports analyst and former Socceroos captain. He's also a human rights advocate responsible for leading a campaign in early 2019 to free a young Barani footballer and refugee from a Thai prison. In his talk, People Power, he discusses the power present when people unite, as well as the responsibility of powerful institutions to take care of all those they influence. Take a listen. Saturday, 26th of January 2019, I hit send on a tweet to FIFA. It said I'll be there on Monday at 2pm for a meeting or I'll hold a press conference on your doorstep for the world's media. 48 hours later, I met with Fatma Samura, FIFA Secretary General. So why was I racing to Zurich to gate crash the world's football governing body? Well, it was a mercy mission on behalf of millions of people around the world to demand that they step up to help free a young Bahraini footballer and refugee, Hakim Al-Arabi, from a Thai prison whose life was in terrible, terrible danger. i just met this kid for the first time only a couple of days earlier in the Bangkok remand prison, and it was even worse than what I'd been warned. I'd never seen that level of desperation or fear on the face of a human being ever before. He hadn't seen his wife for two months, and when we held up a letter from her to the glass, he read it hungrily, desperately, as though it was the last piece of paper on earth. Nothing else existed in the world for him in that moment except news of his loved one. Was she safe? Was she okay? He was a young Bahraini footballer who was incarcerated and tortured back in 2012 as part of the Arab Spring, as one of around 150 athletes who were rounded up and and of whom an example was made. He said that when he was tortured, they sat him down and beat his legs with a pipe, saying that you'll never play football again. Then, when he could take no more, they'd stand him up walk him around so the blood would get back in the limbs, sit him down and go again. That's what he was facing. In a way, he was one of the lucky ones, lucky enough to be able to flee Bahrain and escape to Australia seeking asylum, which he received. A couple of years later, he bravely spoke out against a member of the ruling family who was a candidate in the FIFA presidential election against Gianni Infantino, the most powerful seat in world sport. He said that when he was being tortured, this guy never helped him, didn't protect him and never spoke up on his behalf. And he said, how could this person be in control of running all of world football? Later, when he felt safe, he went with his young bride to Thailand on their honeymoon and their great excitement soon turned into utter despair when the Thai police boarded the plane on the tarmac and arrested him on an Interpol red notice. So began a titanic struggle for his life that drew us deep into a world of international politics, of incalculable wealth, of power, influence and raw, sickening injustice. 
So what's a red notice? Well, it's an international alert by Interpol to locate and provisionally arrest someone uh, pending extradition, surrender or similar legal action. Now, under Interpol's constitution, uh, they are prohibited from undertaking any intervention of a political nature, which this demonstrably was. They're also bound to act in the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, one of which was the right against reformant or the return of a refugee to the country from which they fled. So Interpol should have rejected the request from Bahrain immediately because it violated international human rights law. Although when challenged, the notice was withdrawn. He'd already been arrested. And he was facing all of the torture that had occurred just a couple of years before. Come with me back inside the FIFA meeting now, to which I took a close friend, a head of the Global Athletes Union, Australian lawyer, Brendan Schwab. I said to Fatma, I'm not the Prime Minister of Australia, so I can't speak on behalf of the country, but I am an ex-player and therefore I do represent our current and former players, our football community and millions of people around the world who feel strongly about Hakeem's fate and I'm accountable to them. I'm going to tell you exactly what I've learned in Bangkok in the last week, which is terrifying, and by the end of this meeting, you're going to be accountable to them as well. So how is it then that I could demand a meeting with the world's largest sporting organisation that operates according to its own rules, that's accountable to no one but itself, that speaks in billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of participants, and that oversees the FIFA World Cups, the largest sporting tournaments known to humankind. People power. That's how. When I told Fatma there were over 150,000 signed petitions, it had real power. Increasingly, sport is having to face its responsibility to protect all who come within its purview, whether fans, players, or the myriad other stakeholders. The growing field of sport and human rights is a vitally important one in a world where the rights of people everywhere are increasingly under threat. Sport, as the universal language, has the power to unite people of all backgrounds, to let us come together across all boundaries of religion, nationalities, cultures and races, and to let us finally understand that we're global citizens, that we're all in this together. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's OK for you, Craig. You are an ex-player, you have a public platform, and I'm just one person. I hear you, and I know that we've all questioned whether we can make a difference at some point in our lives. Don't tell anyone, but I felt exactly the same way when I was approached to help Hakeem. I thought I can share a few tweets, and I can certainly lend my reputation to this campaign, but how much can I really do? I'd certainly never done anything like this before, and that carries a level of doubt and worry that's perfectly natural. The only question is whether we give in to it. 
but nothing could have been achieved without a powerful, brilliant global coalition of like-minded people, all of whom made a huge contribution to this campaign. We had brilliant activists, advocates, lawyers. We had footballers, current and former. We had NGOs, human rights organisations. We had uh, uh, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, and we had high-profile supporters all around the world. Every one of those people made a decisive contribution. And Hakim stands as proof today of the power of all of us when we come together in pursuit of what is right and what is just. In the middle of the campaign, I knew that I had to go to Bangkok and that carried a level of risk. There was security risk here at home and the unknown lay ahead. I had to take a leap of faith, as did all involved. And none of us could ever anticipate where we'd end up several months later. But that's the point, isn't it? There's no such thing as certainty of outcome. There's always trepidation and even fear at taking that first step. But our voices matter, our actions make a difference. And one young soul and his future is testament to what can happen when we all take that leap together. We shouldn't forget that Hakim was a refugee on a protection visa under Australia's care, and he was one of around 70 million in the world today. They need the support of the community of nations. We saw sport step forward and help a young footballer like Hakim, but what about all of those who don't have the support of the vast community of football. Sport was able to shine a light on Hakim's plight, but what about all those who suffer in the dark? Too often they're faceless, seen as inhuman, but they're not, are they? They're human beings. They're mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, and kids. Just innocent children. A refugee is you and I with a different passport. Would you travel to the ends of the earth for safety, for freedom, to save your family? Of course you would, we all would. So how can we think less of others that do so? Australia and countless other nations must be better at placing humanitarian values at the forefront of everything that we do. It should be the default position, the person, then the policy. Our treatment of each other in this room, of people around the world, across any boundary, religion, nationalities, colour and race, is critical to producing the world in which we want to live. I came here today to acknowledge the power of everyday people in Australia and around the world who stepped forward to help save a young man from torture, possibly worse, and to enable him to be able to dream about a life free of tyranny and brutality. 
If any of you helped at all, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You gave us strength to be able to save others and hope that every refugee can be seen as human, worthy of our care. There are countless issues about which you might wish to see change, and if so, I urge you to try. Take the plunge. Take your leap of faith. Add your voice, your heart, your passion and your soul. And you never know quite where you'll end up. I walked out of that FIFA meeting almost eight months ago and strode across to front the world's media to report that FIFA had agreed to work together to save a young man's life. And just 16 days later, Hakim Al-Arabi emerged at Melbourne Airport after 77 days in a Bangkok prison into the arms of his young wife and a future of boundless opportunity. That's what you and I, what we can do together. That's people power. Craig Foster there, delivering the final talk for this episode and this series. You've been listening to 2SER's Talk of the Town, featuring talks from the TEDx Macquarie University event. These talks were brought to you by both TEDx and Macquarie University. Unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this episode and this series of TEDx talks. If you've enjoyed these talks, I encourage you to head to YouTube and search TEDx Macquarie University. There have been a couple of talks we haven't been able to include due to a variety of reasons. So, to get the full experience and catch up on the ones we've missed, head on over and check them out. And if you want to listen to this episode again, catch up on past episodes of Talk of the Town, or explore other shows from our network, go to 2ser.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with more coverage of Sydney-based events in the future. But until then... I'm Ryan Stanton, and thank you for listening.